Let's bow before the Lord, please, and let's pray. And uh, I'm eager to study this passage of Scripture with you today. Let us pray, please. Our Father in heaven, Lord, thank you so much for the joy that it is to listen to these songs. Not because of a holiday, Lord God, but because of the truth that you became flesh, Lord. The King of kings brought salvation to the earth. And now if those on the earth will humble themselves and receive him, they will have that salvation and that gift of everlasting life. Emmanuel, our God with us. Marvelous, marvelous. Thank you, Lord, that we can listen to songs that take us there in our minds and in our hearts. Thank you for the musicians and singers that bring them to us. Thank you that we can be here together, Lord. Now we turn our attention to the scriptures and we pray, Lord God, that you would help us to listen attentively, to hear from you. We pray that you would grant faith to each one who hears and, Lord, that we would be doers of your word. Thank you, Lord. I pray that you would help me to speak, help me to say what ought to be said, help myself and all of us to receive your word Quickly take me out of the way and allow it to be about us together hearing from you. That's what's needful. And so we come and we ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read for you Matthew chapter 18, the first 14 verses. Follow along with me if you would. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you're converted and become as as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come. But woe to that man by whom the offense comes. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that didn't go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. That's all. A thought. 
it moves on from there, and really even what comes up next in verse 15 continues the discourse that is this chapter. But all of that to answer a question. I should point out, first of all, that this is another one of those passages that is uh, also covered by Mark and by Luke and their Gospels. And it's sometimes it's maybe not quite so profound to look at those as well, but there are a couple of little perspective differences, not content differences at all, but just perspective differences in Mark's approach to this and Luke's approach to this that make it quite interesting. I find myself drawing little charts on paper, you know, to try to to compare them all. And uh, Matthew tells us in the beginning of this passage that they came to Jesus and they asked him, they said to him in the form of a question, so they asked him what? Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And you might read that and think to yourself, man, what a, what a bold, proud maybe, perhaps even arrogant kind of question to come and ask. You might even think to yourself, it's a foolish question because greatest in the kingdom of heaven maybe is something we shouldn't even be thinking about. Maybe, maybe just the answer is God. You know, Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I'll say more about that in a minute. minute. Mark's perspective on this was a little bit different. And that might have something to do just with the very natural contextual point that Matthew was part of this crowd, right? Mark was not. Mark was probably very closely associated with Peter and maybe got this secondhand from Peter. And then Luke comes along later and seems to have talked to and read many different things. But Mark's Mark's perspective is that Jesus actually asked them, "What what were you guys talking about while we were walking? And it says in Mark that they didn't want to answer him, right? So they even had the sense that like this would be a pretty embarrassing thing to like ask you know to Jesus and Luke's perspective on this is that Jesus perceived what they were thinking so it doesn't even show Jesus like asking them what were you talking about they were just walking and they were talking and Jesus when they came into the place into the house in Capernaum where they were they uh that Jesus just perceived what it was that they were talking about so you have three different perspectives on that and I don't think that they contradict each other at all you can easily harmonize all of that but the idea is there is a bit of there's a bit of uneasiness certainly that you can see on the part of the disciples that they would come with such a question I think perhaps the first really marvelous thing to see in this passage of Scripture, is that Jesus does not give what would be the knee-jerk response. How dare you ask such a thing? None of you are anything. Everything's about my Father and myself. You know? He doesn't doesn't give them like a scolding rebuke. They asked a question and they got an answer. He told them who was greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This is, this is one of the great Jesus being Jesus moments. I call them such things because Jesus doesn't often answer questions the way that we would. You know, that's how we would answer it if someone came to us and asked us, who's the greatest in kingdom of heaven? Don't even think about that. God. Not what Jesus says. 
Jesus tells them who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And he tells them in a way, he tells them in a way that I think should shake up the thinking of any person and certainly should shake up the thinking of any person and should shape up the thinking of every Christian. Do you understand that? Because it's so counterintuitive, it's so profound and true, and it's so wonderfully Jesus. The fact that Jesus gives them an answer would be indicative of the fact that in the kingdom of heaven, there are greater and lesser. Tough to get your mind around all that, right? Maybe not, though. I mean, Jesus does tell people to store up treasures in the kingdom of heaven. And in fact, he says that as a very positive and necessary thing. Lay up treasures in the kingdom of heaven because what are you, what's going to happen if you do that? Your heart will be there as well. Right? So it actually has benefit for you on the earth. When all you do is go through life pursuing treasures on the earth, your heart's going to be stuck, wrapped up in the earth. And when your heart and your mind are stuck, wrapped up in the earth, what are you going to have? Lots of internal turmoil that's not necessary for a kingdom of God, child of God, Christian who's been born again. But when you devote yourself to service, when you devote yourself to worship, that sounded like me. <laughs> I don't know what to say about that. I was, I was, I was. Uh, I mean, it's one thing to be interrupted, but I was interrupted by myself. Do I scold myself? <laughs> I was going to say that guy sounded pretty good, actually, but but this, uh, that's not bad. That's that's that, that's not bad. That's pretty good quality, actually. I, I'm impressed. So so. Uh, uh, what was I talking about? Uh, who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Obviously me, because I'm on people's phones. And, and, and No, 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 not at all. Not at all, not at all, not at all. So, um, I love that the Lord lets us have some humor when we're talking about serious things. He does. So, in any case, uh, 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 I'm talking about, I don't remember what I was talking about. What, are, what was the last thing I said before that came up? Thank you. Thank you. Ask the phone. What's the last thing that I said? Look, if, when you walk through life and you lay up treasures in heaven, the idea is that where you place your treasure, you have some part in this. When you devote yourself to serving God, instead of just pursuing the treasures of this life, when you, when you actually even use your material treasures in the kingdom of God, and your time and your energy, you're laying up treasures there, and you know what that means is what that, where your treasures are is what you're going to care about. That's the idea, right? And if you go through life just, just laying up treasures here on earth, and all you're going to care about is this life, and you're going to have trouble, but if you lay up treasures in heaven, well, then your heart's going to be there as well. There's another passage of Scripture. There's a few passages of Scripture like this. There's another passage of Scripture where... Uh, Jesus is asked if John and James can sit on thrones next to him in the kingdom of heaven, right? And that offends everybody else. That offends all the other disciples around them. And Jesus has to give a teaching about that. So Jesus is dealing with some stuff here, right? It's not for us to aspire to any greatness in and of ourselves. 
That is certainly not the point that Jesus is making here, right? We ought to be humble, and that's the illustration that he's going to give. But what is amazing is to just sit and to listen to what Jesus says here and how it should shake up the world and shape up the Christian. Let's get into it. What's he do? He calls a little child to him and sets him in the midst of them. Right? Little child. And the idea, I'm not a Greek expert or anything like that, but I read the works of people who are smarter than I am to explain to me that the idea of little child here is the smallest of children. And we saw the children that were up here, and we're talking even smaller because uh, who was the smallest up here? Valentina, right? So maybe Valentina-ish or even a little smaller than that because um, it actually says in the Gospel of Mark of this account that Jesus at one point actually picked the child up and held the child in his arms, right? So we're probably not talking Gloria Mia or, 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 or Veronica, right? A little, little too. We're, we're talking like Valentina or maybe even a little younger than that. And Jesus picks up the child and holds the child That doesn't make you guys sad that I said that, right? That I just like make you feel like, oh man, my kids are growing up. I can't hold them anymore. I was was watching the kids sing and thinking about, I mean, I can't. I mean, look at mine. I mean, you know, (laughs) I have to look up to one of mine. So, and and eye to eye with the other. But uh, the, the, uh, um, Jesus is able to hold this child. So it's a very young child. And Jesus actually does some talking while he's holding this child. And the perspective that he gives is this little child sets them in the midst, sets this child right in the middle of them and says, now, I I want you to notice that this first thing that he says is not the answer to their question, right? The question is, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The first thing Jesus says is this, assuredly, I say to you, unless you're converted and become as children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven, right? Right? So they weren't asking who gets to enter the kingdom of heaven. They were asking who's the greatest. But Jesus backs up a step. And to set the whole thing up, he says, unless you're converted and become as little children, you will by no means, maybe for a thought's sake, insert the word even there, you will by no means even enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, it's like a rebuke that says, People who are thinking about who's the greatest are not the occupants of the kingdom of heaven. It's people who are converted. What does it mean to be converted? We know the, we know the, um, like the theological concept of conversion. We associate it with someone who has heard the gospel and has repented and has believed and has been changed by the presence of the Holy Spirit coming into them. I don't know that Jesus is necessarily loading a heavy theological concept into this answer as much as he's just telling them, you need to be changed. That's what a conversion is, change. You think of, convert, you think of converting money from like one uh, currency in one country to another currency somewhere else, right? You change it, you know? What's this? Way? You just change the whole thing. No, it's, you guys need to be changed, If you're not changed from what you are, which is a bunch of guys wondering who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, into little children like this little one that's small enough for me to hold in my arms, unless you become like that, you're not even in. Right? What does that that say about 
like Christians and even the gospel itself. The gospel, the gospel is a message that meets sinners who are people who live their lives full of themselves. Every one of us was there. We walk for our pleasure. We walk and do what we want. We live how we want. But when God's message comes to us, the good news is preceded by some hard news, isn't it? The good news is preceded by the fact that the way we're living is not right before God. We've sinned. We've broken His laws. We've broken His commands. Our lives are loaded down with it. We can all think of sins that we've committed and we've probably all forgotten all kinds of sins that we commit. We've committed sins not even realizing we are. A wicked thought here, an evil word there. And we go through our lives sinning. And what happens is this message comes to us that proclaims that God is holy and God is not only not pleased with the sinfulness of men, The Bible actually teaches that he's angry with sinners every day, angry with the wicked all the time. It teaches that he's going to turn aside the ungodly and the unrighteous into hell. But then comes that good news, you know? But God loves you. God's love caused him to do this amazing thing. He dispatched the word which was with him. The word became flesh. He dispatched his son who came to the world, lived perfectly, sinlessly, walked before God as a perfect spotless lamb, and then was sacrificed on the cross. And when Jesus died on the cross, he took the penalty for all of our sin. We contributed nothing to that. No good thing. We contribute no works. We contribute no worthiness. Just God in his grace and in his love gave Jesus for our sins. He died, but death couldn't hold him, just like we sang in the song, right? Death could not hold him, and the grave could not keep him from rising again. And on the third day, he rose. Sin defeated all the power of it. Death, all the power of it, defeated. And now, the promise of everlasting life to those who will put their trust in him. That is a complete change. For a person to put their faith in Jesus means they're taking their faith off of themselves. That's not necessarily a deliberate act. Don't try to make too much of that. But I'm not trusting in my religiousness. I'm not trusting in my goodness. I'm not trusting that I'm better than the people around me and I'm not as bad as this or not as bad as that. I trust in Christ. To be converted means to be changed from someone who's full of myself, trusting in myself, thinking that I myself am able to be okay before God, thinking that I myself am something that God ought to be pleased with, into what? Something like a little child. What what is it about little children? What is it about them? that we ought to become like. Well, he says in the next verse, he talks about their humility, right? I mean, little children can be trouble sometimes. Let's be fair, right? Yeah? But what are the good, esteemable qualities of little children? 
They love. I'm talking about little, little, little children. They, 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 they love their parents. I'm at a stage in my parenthood where my children are adults or adult-ish or very close, right on that cusp. You know what I mean? And so they have minds of their own and they have activities of their own and I still love them and they love me and we have a good relationship with each other. But it's not, I remember what it was like when they were like what Jesus is describing here. A few of you are there now. A few of you maybe will go there one day. You know, but those, those first couple of years, they're so precious because little children, man, they just love their parents. Some of you are grandparents. You know, Ken always loves to talk to me about his grandchildren. Some of you other ones too. You know, and it's like there's just this thing. You could be struggling with everything, right, Ken? I mean, everything could be hard, but then like, man, you go and you see your granddaughter, your grandson. It's like, oh, man. And Ken gets a big smile on his face, shows me pictures, talks about all the time. Look, because that's what little kids like that are like. They're just loving. They bring joy. They just trust, you know. They're capable of being disobedient, of course, but they trust faith. It's a picture of a humble, simple, childlike faith. Now, let me insert here that Jesus is not specifically talking about children. Don't confuse this with the passage uh, where Jesus has little children coming to him and the disciples try to shove them away. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Let the little children come to me, for of such is the kingdom of God. You can make a little more direct application to children there. That's a separate thing than this. This is a child being used to illustrate a subject in the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, unless you're converted and you become like one, you're not even going to enter. I had this thought and I wrote it down. We shouldn't enter his kingdom thinking we can bring with us what we are. He says, no, become like a child. And this is the thought that came to me. What you are was leading you to hell. True or not true? What you are was leading you to hell. That's why he says, unless you're converted, you can't even enter. You don't just come I, and, and, you know, you come as you are because you can't change yourself. But when you come to him, you don't stay that way. He changes us. He changes us into creatures wherein the chief characteristic of our lives is our faith in him. And that's the humble childlikeness. They have an implicit trust in their parents, Right? They love mom and dad, grandparents. They trust them. They depend on them, right? That's what we're supposed to be like before God. And if our faith is not characterized by that, then we ought to examine our faith and make sure it's real. Faith is not a proud thing. Faith is not a me thing. Faith is a God thing. So, then verse 4 is really the answer, isn't it? Right? Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child, here it is, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So now there's the answer. So basically what he says is this. They come and they say, who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, see this child? Unless you're converted and become like this child, you won't even enter. Therefore, 
whoever is most like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Just as you are converted and become someone who completely trusts Jesus, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the one who grows in that faith. I, I, you know, we get busy and we do things to serve the Lord. Have you noticed that when you read through the Gospels and Jesus does things like he sends them out to preach and, and he sends them out to cast out demons, when they come back, he never commends the stuff that they do. Did you notice that? In fact, on one occasion, they came back to him and they were rejoicing over the fact that they were able to cast out demons and heal and all that. And Jesus says, don't rejoice in this. What? Yeah, don't rejoice. Rejoice that your names are written down in heaven. Right? Because listen, even as Christians, it's not the things that we do that make the impression on God. Just as it is when you first believe, the thing that, if I can use that phrase, makes an impression, the thing that, according to Jesus, defines the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is what? It's their faith. It's their trust in him. It's a couple really neat illustrations. You never see Jesus saying, awesome, great job. You know, great, great preaching there. Oh, great healing there. I might have done it like this, but you know, never any like, you know, let, let's sit down and have a demon casting out seminar so I can show you to do it exactly like, you know, there's none of that. But there are occasions on the Bible, in, in, there are occasions in the gospel where people's faith makes an amazing impression on Jesus. Uh, may I say to you, to make an impression on Jesus, that's no small thing. Let me remind you of one. Turn a couple pages back to Matthew 15, 21. We just went over this not too long ago. Matthew 15, 21. Listen. Then Jesus went out from there and departed into the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan, Gentile, a Gentile woman, a Canaanite, came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. He didn't answer a word. And the disciples came and urged him, saying, Get her out of here. Send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshipped him. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. It's not, I think, that the worship and the Lord help me were separate. The Lord help me was the worship. Do you understand? She worshiped him saying, Lord, help me. The expression of her faith, even when all of Christ's closest assistants are saying, get her out of here. That pressing of her faith. Look, she's got a demon-possessed daughter bad enough. She's got these guys saying, send her away. But the worship is she just presses into Jesus anyway, right? And says, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Maybe could have been perceived as insulting. Not what Jesus meant. 
won't take the time to break it all down again today, but we did before. But look at the response. Yes, Lord. Just, just that alone. Just the fact that he just said it's not good to give the little children's bread to the dogs, and she said, yes, not how dare you. No, she said, yes, Lord. The worship continued, see? Yes, Lord. Canaanite woman. Canaanite woman. Who are the Canaanites? They're the ones that got driven out in the ancient times under Joshua. A descendant of them. Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said, look at these first two words, oh, woman. Listen, her faith drew, oh, woman, out of the Son of God. The sovereign Holy, divine, creator, son of God, who knows everything and has power over everything. This woman presses with a demon-possessed child through Christ's own disciples who are saying, send her away. Presses into Jesus even saying, look, I wasn't sent to accept the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Look, look, it's not good to give the, uh, the, the children's bread to the dog. Presses through all of that and says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall off the table. And Jesus is, oh, woman. Look, great is your faith. Do you see what makes an impression? Do you see what, do you, listen, the passage we're talking about, Who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The one who's most like the little child. What's the characteristic of the little child? They love, they trust, they're humble, they're low, they're humble, and so they just love their parents, their grandparents, whoever. They they just trust. They completely, utterly depend. That's what makes them so wonderful when they're that age, right? You know, they start to grow up, and then you start to have little arguments with them, little disagreements about this. Sorry, guys. But, 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 <laughs> I love my kids. They're good. But, you know, we have, you, you know, they grow up. You start to have the little thing. But when they're little like that, they just love and trust their parents. That's the greatest in the king. You see what impressed them? Jesus, Jesus never said, oh, you wonderful guys. Great job casting those demons out. Never said that. Never recorded but a woman who just believes, oh, woman, great is... That's what he's looking for. That's what he's looking for is your faith. Your faith. Your faith. Keep your faith strong. Stay in the word. Stay in prayer. Keep your faith strong. Difficulties and trials come, but as you walk through them closely with the Lord, your faith grows. It's purified. It shines like gold refined in a furnace. Your faith. That's what defines greatness in the kingdom of God. How much like a little child with his parents do you love and trust and depend on God? You don't bring anything to him that impresses him. The way, listen, you left to your best devices deserve hell. The best of men left to themselves deserve hell. That is the truth. 
but the ones who love and trust Jesus. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven are those who love and trust him like the little baby, like the little child. We can stop there because Jesus, at least from our perspective, has answered their question. There's another, there's another passage, by the way. I, just, I won't take the time, but if you go to Luke chapter 7 and verse 1, there's a, uh, another Gentile, a centurion, whose son is sick, and he's a, good, he's a, he's a, he's a beloved man among the Jews. It says, it says, built him a synagogue, and he has a servant who's, who's sick, and he sends other servants to go to Jesus and, and, and say, come and heal, and, 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 uh, and he sends the message, said, I'm not even worthy that you should come under my roof. Just say the word, and I shall be healed. And Jesus says, Jesus says, I have not found such great faith even in all Israel. Faith. What gets commended by the Lord Jesus? Faith. You want to work before him? What shall we do, they asked, that we may do the works of God? This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Faith. Yes, he's called us to do lots of things, but the things that we do for him, the things that we do are not things that like make us more saved or make us more great. The things that we do are just the things that we are able to do. What does the Bible describe the works that we do as? Okay, yes, that's the works that we do in relation to saving us. But as Christian, you're right, by the way. You're smarter than I am. I had thought of that. But, but, but we are as workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which he has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, right? So when we do our works as Christians that glorify him. We're just walking in the things that he's prepared beforehand for us to do. Elsewhere, the Bible describes it as our reasonable service. When we do things that are serving the Lord, it's just reasonable that we should. But the thing that really impresses him is your faith. Right? Listen, Mary and Martha, right? That's why Martha is serving and serving and serving and serving and serving. She gets really mad and says, what, look at Mary's just sitting there listening. And Jesus says what? What Martha? What are you all upset about? Mary's chosen the excellent part. He wasn't rebuking her for working. We are supposed to do what we can do. We are, but that's just our reasonable service. What really causes a Christian to rise is the development and spiritual growth of their faith. There are so many things you can say about this. Now, now, as I said, you could say maybe that's the end of it, but it's not, is it? So Jesus puts this little child here, And he talks about the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the one who's most like the little child. And I, I'm just, in, in Luke and Mark, he also adds the very important statement that just for time's sake, I'm not going to break down today. We'll come to it when we go through one of those gospels. But added to this is he says, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. 
which just adds to the whole idea of the lowness and the humility, the servanthood of the... I mean, Jesus illustrated this himself later on with his disciples when he took off his outer layer of clothes and put on an apron and went around and washed each one of their feet. I mean, he gave the great example of, like, servanthood. So another part of this that'll be a lesson for another day because there's so much of this that we still have to go on to in this passage. Now, at the end of verse 4... Right? They ask the question, who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus puts a little child there in the midst of them. Assuredly, I say to you, unless you're converted and become as little children, you're not even going to enter. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child, that's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. There you go. Got your answer, right? Ooh, there's more. He goes on. He goes on and he makes three more points about this little child. Right? You see him? The first one of those three is what? Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Now, he's not talking specifically about little kids. The little kid is illustrative of his children, other Christians. And so we're still, Jesus is giving him a big loaded answer here. Greatness in the kingdom of heaven is defined, number one, by that humble, faithful, childlike love and trust, right? But also, there's what? There's receiving other children, right? Turn to Romans 15 with me. So I'll make a point about something. So Jesus when he puts this child in the midst of them, he really says four things. Number one, greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the one who becomes like him, describing their childlike faith. Number two, there's if whoever receives one of these little ones receives me. So the first two of them are in the affirmative, and then the next two are in the negative, which we'll come to. He tells you what things not to do with little children, all right? So in Romans 15, uh, starting in verse 1, I'll just read. It says, because it talks about relationships among people in the church, brothers, and the importance of consideration of others. It says, we then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. See, the, 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 the command to the Christian is to live your life in such a way that what your life is doing is promoting the growth, the edification, the building up of others. For even Christ didn't please himself, right? Right? That's self-evident. But as it's written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Christ was reproached. Of course he was. For whatever things were written before, were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. In other words, the Bible was written to us to teach us these things and comfort us through the hardships that we might bear. And then he says, Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another. Like-minded toward one another, right? According to Christ Jesus, in other words, for the sake of the glory of Jesus Christ, that you may with one mind, one mouth, 
glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the conclusion is, therefore, receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Jesus says, when you receive one of these little ones, referring to his children, his children, you receive him. We are told in the scripture to take the things that can come between us, which might be areas of liberty, and set them aside for the sake of the betterment of others. And instead of allowing things in our lives that cause us to be divided up, set things aside for the sake of the betterment of others, and what? Receive one another like Christ received us. Hey, you think Jesus could find some reasons in your life why he might not want to hang out with you? I know he can in mine. I think about that sometimes. It's like, Lord, I mean, if we walked on the earth, would you even want me around? And of course, in and of myself, the answer is, of course not, but it's his grace. And it's his love. And Jesus didn't walk to please himself. Jesus gathers to himself everyone that his father gives him. Isn't that great? And so that's what we ought to do as well. Receive each other. We are, it is not given to us in the body of Christ to say thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs up, thumbs down. We're all one. We can all find things to pick at with one another. But what Jesus says is this. When you receive one of these little ones, you receive who? Him. What's the flip side of that coin? When you reject one of these little ones, who are you rejecting? Because the little ones are His. They're His. You understand? We're not our own. The other brothers and sisters in Christ are not yours, they're his. They're not their own, they're his. And so we're told, receive one another. That's number two. Number three, if you look back at Matthew, uh, then he's not done yet. Then he goes on and says, whoever causes one of these little ones, and the reason I know, by the way, that this is all one discourse, one answer, one thought, is because of the constant reference to the child. Right? He's, he's still talking about the little ones with this child there in the midst of them. Right? So the fact that he's still talking about the little ones means he's still answering the question. Who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The one who's most like the little ones. The one who receives one of the little ones receives me. And now this, now it flips to like, he flips from affirmation to warning. And both are important parts of the spiritual diet of a Christian. We take the simple commands of scripture and in the power of his Holy Spirit, we desire to obey. But we also take the warnings of the, and the admonishments of scripture and make sure we put out of our lives things that ought to be put out as well. Two-sided coin, Right? Just like the Ten Commandments. There are commands to do things. There are commands not to do things. Jesus is the comprehensive teacher. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Do you know what a millstone is? There are actually, there's actually a couple of uh, grist mills in New Jersey. 
and in other places. But a millstone is a very large stone that's used for grinding stuff down to nothing. Just the weight of it, right? In other words, it's heavy. The person who would, again, the little ones are illustrative of his children. The person who would cause one of his children to sin, you're better off if that millstone was somehow fastened to you so that it was around your neck and then thrown into the sea, which is a very severe way of dying. And that's the point. Don't cause others to sin. Now, then from there, Jesus launches off. And he launches off to a tangential but still on the subject discourse about offenses in general. And he says, woe to the world because of offenses. Something else, right? And the offenses he's talking about here are not the offenses of men that they present before God, but the offenses of men that they present before other men. That's the point. Woe to the world because of offenses. They must come, but woe to that man by who the offense comes. It is not a pleasant thought to think about how the Lord feels about people doing things that lure or cause others into sin, especially his own children. You must be very circumspect. You must be very careful in the activities that you participate in your lives in that you are not luring or causing temptation or bringing Christ's children into sin. Now, in this discourse about offenses, he says two things. One, he talks about offending his little ones. But then he even talks about things in your own life that cause yourself to sin. And this is a repetition of something that he said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. He said, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet than to be cast in, uh, uh, than to be cast into, uh, or rather than, uh, wait, I'm not reading, my glasses are really messed up. It's better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. Right? You understand the illustration. If there's something in your life that causes you to sin, get rid of it. That's really the bottom line. Sin leads people to hell, right? And even though, yes, all of our sins are, have been forgiven, we still ought to look at the things that might be are hanging on us, having sway in our lives that cause us to sin and cut them off or gouge them out, which was the second half of this, right? Your eye causes you to sin. Pluck it out, cast it from you. Better for you to enter life with one eye than into hell with two, basically, is what he says, right? In other words, the eye, the hand, the foot that causes you to sin is illustrative of influences, things that you have in your own life. See, the first thing was, the offenses, woe to them by whom they come. He's talking about how people offend other people. Now he's focusing in on the individual and saying things in your own life that cause you to sin. He died for our sins. Don't hold on in your lives to the things that cause you to sin. Cut them off, gouge them out. 
You're not earning salvation by doing that. You're saved by his grace. I know that. But he cares about how you live. Amen? Let me press forward because I need a few minutes for this last one. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. So the first thing was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven was the one who was humble, just faithful, trusting, like a little child. The second point was whoever receives one of his little children receives him. The third point is don't cause one of his little ones to sin. You're better off with the millstone being thrown around your neck and cast into the sea. And then the fourth one, which is maybe the most eye-opening, Take heed that you don't despise one of these little ones. So now, now we go from maybe the obvious, don't cause them to sin, to the more subtle. Don't despise one of these little ones. And man, I love the, I love the reasoning behind it. Don't despise one of these little ones. For I say to you, that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Don't try to read into that like a concept of like a personal guardian angel. There's just not enough that's said there to draw the conclusion. The general point is this. An angel is a messenger. And listen carefully. The idea is when one of his little ones is despised, he finds out about it. That's the point. That's what a messenger does. Hey, have you considered so-and-so down there? They're being despised by their brethren. In other words, if you allow yourself to despise one of his little ones, God's aware of it. That ought to have an effect on your thinking. Verse 11, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. See, here's the issue. When you despise, when you despise one of your brethren, you are despising someone that the Son of Man came to seek and to save. You have placed yourself in competition with God. That's the point. And then, verse, and then the, the parable in verse 12 is often lifted out by itself, but the point of the parable is to explain what he just said. I love how it starts off. What do you think? Right? I, I know he's getting ready to like just, he's getting ready to like appeal to their sense of reason. Wants them to think about it. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 and go to the mountains to seek the one that's straying? Yeah, he does. Right? Of course he does. He's not just going to like write off one. One. This is a sheep. He cares. If a shepherd cares about an animal, how much do you think God cares about a person? And if he should find it, assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. When you despise one of his children, you're despising someone that God rejoices over. Hello? We are not given that option. May I suggest to you it is the height of arrogance and folly 
for Christians to despise each other. What are we? What, 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 what have you risen to that you think you have that when God himself says, I came to seek and to save them. Let me tell you what it's like for my father. It's like a sheep was lost and he went out and found the one that was lost and rejoiced over that one that was lost more than the other ones that didn't go astray. And you're going to despise them? God's here rejoicing and you're here despising them. How's that going to work out? Verse 14, even so it is not the will of your father in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If God is not willing that they die, then who are you to despise and to make them feel like they die on the inside? Because that's what spite does. Now, You ready for the genius of Jesus? It's got nothing to do with me. Because if it just hung there, it'd be like, well, we have issues with each other, though. I just don't feel like I really want to get along with so-and-so. They do this. They look like that. I want to be around who I want to be around. Do conflicts come up between believers? What's the very next thing that Jesus says? It's his way for dealing with it. Don't despise his little ones. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Now, I've crossed into next week's sermon, unless I push it off until after Christmas, which I haven't decided yet. But but that's the way you deal with it. Listen, let everyone look at me, please. Look at me. I want you to get this. You have no right to hold in spite a brother or sister in Christ if you have not gone to them and told them their fault between you and him alone. Alone. And if he hears you, you've gained your brother. And may I suggest to you, without getting too far ahead, that the vast majority of people, and listen, I have been a Christian for a long time. I know it theologically to be true, and I know it practically to be true. The vast majority of issues between Christians can be settled if they talk to each other. Not to 50 other people, to each other. Because the true child of God has in them a humble spirit that desires to just love daddy. I don't have time. I was going to look up Ephesians 4.32. It says, be kind and tender-hearted to one another, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9 says, love as brothers and be courteous and be tender-hearted to one another. That's how we're supposed to be to each other. Right? Don't despise one of these little ones. God knows when it happens and God desires to save them and not to lose a single one of them. 
They're his. They're not yours. Settle it right. Settle it God's way. And, there's, and listen, there's recourse. If you happen to go to the brother or sister and talk to them and they don't hear you, then you're told take someone with you. And if they don't hear it then, then you're told to tell it to the church. And if they don't hear it from the church, then the church is supposed to throw them out. That's how serious it is. But what you're not allowed to do is just despise them. What an answer to a question. Who's the greatest in the... Boy, I wonder if they... I'm glad they asked. As, as silly a question is, aren't you glad they asked because you get all this instruction? Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Little kid. The one who's the most like the little kid is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one of them receives me. Whoever causes one of them to sin, better off being drowned with a heavy stone around your neck. And don't despise them because their angels see the face of God all the time and God knows it and God, God rejoices to save them. Rejoices. It makes God happy to save them. God is happy with every child who believes in him. He's not happy about all the stuff we do. We do things that strain our relationship. We say we ought to confess our sins and be cleansed and be in a right relationship with him. But overall, when a person believes, when a person has faith in Jesus Christ, that's the one way, really, that we can please God. It's really the only thing, right? Without faith, it is impossible to please him, Hebrews says. And if you go down through Hebrews chapter 11, it's person after person after person after person after person and how their faith honored God. Become like the little child. Loving, trusting, having faith in God. Receive his children. Don't cause them to sin. And don't despise them. Jed and Fanny, come on back up here and finish this up.